0: everybody, welcome back to Turn that This Podcast, I'm Mike, he him, and tonight I'm here with Sterling, he him as well. And tonight we're back again with the Cars and Comrades, Comrades, and uh, we're going to talk some more about Walter Ruther. This is going to be part three in that series. So uh, with us we have Connor, he him, we have Brandon, he him, and Zach, he him. And we may or may not later be joined by Brian, he him as well. So how are you guys doing? What's going on? I think we're all doing pretty, uh, pr- I'm
1: doing well, I uh, can't, can't speak for Brandon.
2: Well, Brandon's doing real bad. Brandon caught COVID this weekend. Damn. Yeah. I fully reserve the right to drop off this call early and also just speak complete nonsense for an hour or two because I'm in and out of like fever screams and stuff. Yeah, dude.
0: Yeah. I mean, whatever you need, oh. but, uh, yeah, we're more than happy to accommodate. I mean, it's not going to be your first malady on the podcast, so. I'm <laughs> committed to
2: this low effort thing that I've committed myself to.
0: <laughs> How about you, Zach? What's going on? Uh, You know, I'm not doing too
3: bad. Cool, uh, I'm chilling.
2: Yeah, if you want to change that, I, you could get COVID.
4: That is an option.
3: You know, I keep trying, but I just can't. This vaccine works too well.
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Disagree. <Yeah. laughs>
0: well, the good thing, Brandon, is that since you are vaccinated, you probably will you know, most likely not have too terrible symptoms, I hope so.
2: Yeah, so far, it's actually not even as bad as how I felt when I got the vaccine. So that's a plus.
0: Oh, good. That's good. Yeah. Nice. So Connor, I know yeah. you want to get through a lot tonight, and I would actually like you to do that. You know, the more material you can get through, the better. Considering yeah. how little we've gone through the last two parts, because we just keep getting drunk and disorderly. That being said, <laughs> could you possibly give like a your five minute version of what we have covered so far? Not only just for our listeners who may have it's, may, it may have been a while until they or since they've listened to those other two parts, but for Sterling here who has not been on the previous two, and maybe just to try and catch him up a little. Yeah, yeah. So
1: the overview here is that Walter Ruther was a UAW labor organizer in the 20th century. Hugely influential figure, uh, both in politics and the labor movement, but he's kind of the biggest figure that no one on the left has ever heard of. Obviously, as evidenced by the fact that every time we bring him up, everyone's like, I don't know who that is. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So he was an integral part of the growth of the UAW, United Auto Workers in Detroit, he was a huge part of actually getting the big three to recognize the union and improving lives for working people you know, around the country. He had a pretty broad vision of uh, what labor organizing was about. So it went beyond just getting immediate gains for the workers you represent. It was a, he had a broader kind of social vision. But on the other hand, he was pretty rabidly anti-communist. So he had a lot of tension with sort of the left faction and the communists within the UAW and uh, the CIO. So he it came up through, in,
2: the time in the UAW when it was largely run by socialists and communists.
1: Yeah. And he himself considered himself a socialist, although uh, I, I would probably put him more in the democratic socialist, social Democrat, kind of depending on the year. He did go through a lot of struggle. Um, so all the anti-communism aside, didn't win him any friends, and he was constantly stalked by capital and, you know, the state, essentially. Mm -hmm. So through all that, I mean, he was a huge figure, incredibly impactful on the labor movement as a whole. And I think there's a lot we can learn from kind of the story here, you know, just tactics moving forward. What should the labor movement of the 21st century look like based on kind of what we see happening in the past?
4: So, but that's the direct. Directly plugged into CoIntel COINTELPRO.
1: <laughs> not, yeah, not quite. I mean, plenty of people did not like him uh, in okay. the States. Herbert Hoover himself did not like him at all. He,
2: he sort of exemplified the whole thing of, no matter what you do, they're going to call you a communist, so you might as well just be a communist.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: But he still he wouldn't do pretty... it. Pretty. Yeah, no, he was...
4: I was <laughs> like, how, how did they exemplify that?
2: Again, Beaver... I, mean, I guess I meant he, should, he exemplifies that he should have just been a communist. Right. Okay. gotcha. Like by being a socialist, he gained himself no favors. He had no friends. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know enough about him. And also um, everything is real hazy for me right now. So <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say.
1: Yeah. he. I mean, he had friends. It, it was Walter Ruther is a very complicated character. And the story is pretty complicated for a number of reasons. Uh, We're obviously taking a a further left kind of uh, critique, but it's not to condemn him entirely. I mean, you know, people who we greatly respect also had a ton of respect for him, you know, including Michael Parenti, who is not usually very uh, kind to to, uh, the more liberal factions uh, on the left. So it's not exactly an open and shut case here, which I think there's a lot to be learned from that. So in the previous episodes, we've kind of discussed some of the political struggles within the UAW and its relationship to the CIO and the uh, American Federation of Labor as well. Uh, We talked about sort of the times and, you know, just how bad working conditions were back in the uh, 20s and 30s and how all that kind of related to the labor movement as a whole as we were really kicking off here. So in our last episode, we talked about the Ford hunger strike back in 1932, which was unsuccessful and actually carried some pretty heavy casualties. Uh, I believe there was, there was 4,000 people in the March and I think there was four deaths if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Four, four marchers were shot to death. Uh, 60 others were shot and wounded. So a uh, very serious um, labor action. That was followed up by the Kelsey Hayes strike back in 1936 and then we're now kind of getting into the really big, important strikes. Um, so those would be the sit-down strike at GM, which is how the UAW got recognized at GM. And then uh, the Battle of the Overpass at Ford, which was uh, not so successful. But so that's kind of where the story is so far. I'm anticipating we're probably going to get through those two. Those are pretty heavy topics. And then we'll, I think, move into the you know 50s and 60s next episode. But we'll see how far we get. Hey, man, I'm here for it. Cool. All right. So let's start off with the uh, sit-down strike here at GM and what was kind of going on there. So in uh, 1936, uh, the UAW started having meetings about how they were going to actually unionize at the Big Three, the first of which they decided on was GM. Kelsey Hayes, the strike before this, was a supplier for Ford Motor Company. They made wheels and brake drums. So that crippled, you know, production for Ford. But they knew that Ford was going to be very difficult to organize, mostly Mm -hmm. because Henry Ford had his army of henchmen led by Harry Bennett. Mm -hmm. um, And it was going to be very violent. Um, So they knew they weren't ready. So the plan was to go to GM first. So they start with GM. And what was going on was the plants up in Flint, Michigan, were pretty much the only game in town. Right. So Flint, Michigan, at the time, was basically a factory town. The judges, the police, everybody was in the pocket of GM. So Mm -hmm. workers had no rights, no leverage, no anything. Uh, At the time, GM was the largest manufacturer uh, in the world
0: or the uh, largest auto manufacturer. Let's just point out that, like, it seems obvious, of course, if you have that big of a presence for employing all the people of that town, of course, that's going to be how it ends up. It's just is super sad because if you ask the people of Flint, Michigan, who are obviously dealing with their struggles right now of having those factories not there anymore and all the problems that come with that, and it's like even the glory yep. days of that town when they had the most employment when they had the factories there, that still sucked it still fucking sucked, like yeah, yeah, and that's that is sort of the um
1: the problem with these you know these huge the fox cons, the Tesla factories, whatever, well, they take over a town the entire town which means the workers and their families are at the mercy of one company. Yeah. And, cap- and we all know capital can move,
0: labor can't. No, Amazon and, wants to open up company towns again, like openly. They're just like, yeah, this sounds like a great idea. Let's fucking do it. And everybody's like, yeah, sure. Yep. And so, I mean,
1: this is what we're looking at. and And it's actually one of the things that I find most amazing to me in this, in the study that we're doing is that now it's gotten to a point where Sentiment towards police uh, and the legal system is starting to shift, right? We're, we're starting to notice more people, even liberals, who are kind of uh, more against like, you know, anti-cop or at least they're demanding reform and whatnot. What's most shocking to me, I think, through this study is seeing that actually people who are older, boomers and stuff, I don't know where they got their view that the police were anything but a private military force for the companies, because that's literally what they were in the 30s, 40s, 50s. I mean, they were literally on the payroll,
2: 80s, 90s, 2000s and 2010s. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, it's just I keep finding that, like, when I look at history, I'm just like you people lived through this. Like shit was actually like they were way more in your face about it. Like, I don't know where they got this idea that the police were uh, ever something more than just capitals, private army.
4: Yeah, I had just mentioned COINTELPRO.
0: All right, so it can't all be COINTELPRO. Some of it is just ideology.
4: (laughs) There are a lot of uh, credible theories that even Woodstock, you know, like the whole acid movement and a lot of that was largely the result of at least COINTELPRO adjacent uh, CIA operatives. And that, you know, they, they were pushed... Yeah, I mean, there there are some decent theories, and I, I wish I was more researched on them myself to share. That maybe that's a good podcast episode. But I was, I there, wish there was... I was more researched on everything. <laughs> yeah,
1: <right. laughs> but you know, I wish like I could idea... form coherent thoughts right now.
4: <laughs> but like the idea that this movement of people who were already open to you know, like this uh, new worldview, and just putting the right figures in there, pushing the right bit of information, and just. You know, tagging along, you know, free love includes the military and the police, dude. I mean, Mm -hmm, there, mm -hmm. there were some easy ways to frame it with some very susceptible minds is all I'm saying. Yeah,
1: no, I mean, it's it's easy to just like not see the whole cage you're in to like recognize. Oh, I'm in a cage, but like not see all of it. It affects a lot of people, even myself, I'm sure, to some extent.
2: Not to mention that those same boomers have been under 40 years of propaganda. So when I mean, you're just inundated fresh with that of sort of stuff Cold without viewing War. it critically for decades.
4: What yeah, I, I guess that'll fresh, do it. I don't know why I said fresh out of the Cold War. I mean, they were still fucking in it. Hell, we're still fucking in it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we're, just, yeah. we're in Cold War Part 2, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Part 2. Yeah.
4: This fucking <laughs> reboot is terrible. Uh, yeah, we're just
1: at the start too. But I don't want to get too uh, down on this podcast yet. Plenty of time for that later. All right. So back to Flint, Michigan. Um, At the time, obviously, it was a factory town. The police, judges, all in the pockets of GM. Like, they're just, it's blatant. Workers had no overtime, no holidays. Pensions did not exist, which they don't exist now. Just Mm -hmm. amazing how we went back to that. (laughs) But no pensions, uh, no unemployment insurance, no health care, none of that. Did you say no overtime or no overtime pay? Uh no overtime pay. Oh okay, uh, yeah, yeah, they of course they, overtime they were forced to work many, many years.
4: good news so, overtime has been approved. Bad news, I'll put that in the clip notes. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> my union is currently fighting like hell to get us to a twelve hour workday. If that gives you any idea of what the labor movement has accomplished.
1: Jesus. Oh my god. Yeah, that's I I've been watching I've been still following those uh IATSE accounts and I'm kinda like Yo, strike should have happened. This is come on. This is too much. What
0: is? How long is your workday now? Twelve hours is is the fight.
2: Well, it it varies. I've been on crews with ten hour days. Most of the crews I work on are twelve hour days. Um, but shoot crews are susceptible to the whims of directors and such, and sixteen, eighteen hour days plus are not uncommon.
4: It, I just want to oh, say fuck, if. 16 to 18 hour days are not in common. Um, I don't think you need a union. You need rifles.
0: (laughs) I mean,
1: yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, oh, um, Brandon's going to go nuts. I am drinking Jepson's Malort. The finest liquor around.
0: (laughs) I don't, I've heard tales of that. I don't even know what it is. What is that? Is it like a whiskey? It's the only
2: liquor where it tells you on the side of the bottle how bad it is.
1: (laughs) It's delicious. It's a uh, Norwegian medicine, essentially, back in the day. Okay. (laughs) What's the proof on it? Is it like a liqueur? Yeah, it's a liqueur. So it's like 35% alcohol. Okay. It's a Chicago thing. People trick their friends into trying it. Oh, yeah, take a shot of this. And then they make a, you know, what's called malort face because it's Mm -hmm. so bad. I like it.
0: I mean, I've come to... I've come to enjoy it quite a bit, so. I mean, I'll try it. If I can find a bottle, I'll try it. But uh, on the East Coast, we have rock and rye, but it doesn't have that same kind of connotation. It's like medicinal, but it's like you put that in tea when you have a cough or some shit. And it's like old people know about rock and rye. And like, I drank it once and like young people laughed at me. Like, what the fuck are you drinking? I'm like, I have a, I have a cough. Leave me alone. I got the COVID. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is like, um,
1: it, it's Wormwood. So Oh, like absinthe. You're... Yeah, like absinthe. It's just like, it's a bitter absinthe kind of flavor.
4: But without the fun really part. Really selling us on it there.
1: Yeah, without the fun part. All right. So anyway, yes. State of unions today, not that much better. Although working conditions are maybe slightly better in general. I don't know. So shit was bad at the time. Pay was pretty low for white men. Pay was around today's federal minimum wage. So whatever that is, the seven twenty-five an hour or whatever. Mm. That was in Detroit, That was what white men got paid for women and people of color. It was closer to in today's dollars. It would be about 220 an hour. So, yeah, that's how fucking bad pay was. Now, this is during the Depression. I mean, this is they got workers, you know, by the collar here. It's it's everyone's bent over a barrel pretty much. And especially in a factory town. I mean, you can't you can't just move like moving. I think uh, back in the 30s was not like moving today where you just call up. Movers and it's it was a big bigger deal back then. So,
2: I've seen Beverly. Hills. I know what it
1: was like. You've seen <laughs> what? The Beverly
2: Hillbillies.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like, uh... what it's like. You guys call them movers. That's pretty bougie. But uh I've always just like you never called a mover. Move. Yeah.
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm just making the uh whatever you got Google Maps and shit. I don't I don't know how people moved back in that. <laughs> I have. No, I'm just like I don't. It seems impossible to me. So.
0: Everybody I uh, take, a drink, take a drink because uh, Sterling said I should rewatch that. That's the sketch phrase.
4: <laughs> I will break my shit before I hire a mover. And I'm saying that now, knowing that yeah. uh, the next time the next time I move, I, I probably will eat my words and hire a mover because this last time was so <laughs> was so goddamn miserable. Um, <laughs> but for for the time being, I will break my shit before I hire movers. And I'll re- I think I'll Sterling, you that. and I, are at,
0: we're at that peak where we have accrued a bunch of stuff because we're now in our mid-30s, and we also <laughs> are physically declining enough that we're like, and also probably doing well enough financially that we're like, okay, it's about that time. When we've reached the, the, we're the point on the graph where you and I are a remover. You're an insurance guy. You get it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I think Brian's with us now, so Brian, you with us?
5: Yeah, I'm, I'm at work right now. Can you hear me okay?
0: Yeah, we can.
4: Okay, cool. I'd say <laughs> we don't need unions. This man is having to podcast own the clock. You need rifles. It's time to. Sh- <laughs>
5: <laughs> I, I mean, I work a weird shift time, so it's it's uh you know it uh, it happens. Yeah,
4: I hope I hope you weren't on speakerphone for that.
5: <laughs> no, no, I, I I went away from uh, where some folks are, so uh, hiding from everyone.
1: I fully support podcasting while on the clock. That's absolutely that's absolutely. That's, some, that's, absolutely. that's
5: Yeah, just don't tell my boss. <laughs> my job gives that's us sick
2: If we get sick, we get paid for our time off. So technically, I'm podcasting on the clock right now.
1: Nice. Ooh, shit. Oh <laughs> yeah. Well, Brian, I know you're just joining us now. Um so basically we we got as far as saying that shit was bad back in the 30s and uh the UAW wanted to uh unionized gm so got real far
4: okay <laughs> yeah that only took 45 minutes <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah well yeah welcome to cars and comrades guys
5: <laughs> yeah i'll probably be pretty quiet here but i'll just listen in and add a few clips
1: uh, as i'm able so um basically shit was bad the uaw was already having secret meetings to start the unionization effort at gm at the time i, I couldn't independently verify this because i'm a dumb dumb and i don't know how to look this kind of stuff up and i tried googling and i was like this ain't working but there is a worker who did claim that there was a city ordinance in flint michigan um that actually prevented groups of three or more from getting together in flint michigan presumably to stop union uh organizing efforts now i don't know how to look up old-timey laws on the books but i would call that a uh, pretty big violation of freedom of speech and the right to assemble. But of course the constitution was just a fucking rag. It was never actually a real, uh, these rights are not real. They're they're up to whatever state is enforcing uh, the law. So yeah. They're
4: barely shit to begin with.
1: Yeah. Bad to begin with and all the good stuff, uh, not, a, not, you know, actually meaningful and not real. So Uh, For everyone who thinks the Constitution is actually worth saving, it's not worth shit. States get to do what the fuck they want.
4: Yeah, and also their opinions are not worth shit if they believe that. The Constitution is a piece of trash. It's much worse than nothing at all. And yeah, burn that shit. Sorry, continue. Hell yeah. I'm with
1: it. So anyway, I just think that that's worth mentioning to show just how bad workers had it and how strong the corporate grip was on the actual Uh, city government at the time. So workers were not able to meet, uh, but the UAW decided this was the way to go. So they decided to first go for the Fisher One body plant. So this is where they were making the bodies for GM cars. They chose a new way to strike, and on December 30th, 1936, they began what's called the sit-down strike. Uh, Actually, well, so this is the second time they're using it up north, but This was pioneered in the Kelsey Hayes strike. And so what happened was workers go in and they refuse to work. They sit in the plant and they, you know, take up the machines and they make sure that there can't be strike breakers if you're sitting in front of the machine. Right. So they're using the new sit down strike, which they've already seen some success with. And it's pretty fucking devastating. This cripples production. There's other GM plants. So, you know, they've got the body plant, but like GM is still getting parts. They're still putting together engines. So things are still moving, but this is going to put some pressure on pretty soon, right? Because they don't they don't have too many extra bodies. So obviously they're going to stop production in short enough order. One of the things that uh, is, is worth mentioning pretty much right away, the workers came together inside the plant, and they knew this was going to be kind of lasting for a little while. Uh, They weren't sure if it was going to be days, weeks, or months, but they knew it was probably going to be, you know, more than a couple weeks. So the thing about a sit-down strike is the workers can't leave the plant. They are stuck there. So they are pretty much reliant on company facilities for, you know, their bathrooms, their water, and they need ways to get food in, right? So there has to be some kind of outside support for the strike. They obviously had all that planned out, but uh, it's a big undertaking. One of the things they did right away was they set up. Uh, they started running like a workplace democracy, and this is kind of one of the things that's you know easy to overlook. But workers knew that they were going to be living here for probably several weeks, potentially you know a couple months or whatever, and they created a system of how to dole out you know duties for like cleaning and sanitation. They were giving out jobs for people to do to make sure that everything ran smoothly and they were, you know, they had a little bit of a court system set up. And this was at a time when I don't know how much the workers knew at the time about, you know, what was going on in, in say Spain or the Soviet union, but like that stuff kind of permeated a little bit. So workplace democracy wasn't like the most foreign concept. And it was just people like, Hey, shit needs to get done. So they set up a way for shit to get done. Mm-hmm. Um, so they had people who were standing guard because obviously the company wasn't happy with this and was going to try and do shit. They they had all sorts of jobs. Everybody had a duty um, and things were run democratically. So this was actually kind of a little microcosm of like what the left broadly wants. Right. We want more democracy, more worker control. And the workers demonstrated it. Um, I don't know if they could as well today but like working towards that is i think a worthwhile goal but at the time they were able to get that done pretty quickly so they had a little democracy going which was very cool they also had outside support so at the time you know there was their families and stuff were able to uh, help out in the strike right so because the um, mostly men but there were a lot of women in this uh, involved in this as well A lot of the men were gone, so women had to take up more responsibilities in the home with the children, which uh, they also had to get involved with the effort to support the strike. So that meant making food, helping take care of the community in the absence of all the workers uh, who were stuck in the plant and obviously couldn't leave. This uh, actually led to the creation of the Women's Auxiliary The Women's Auxiliary was organized by a woman named Janora Johnson, and she was part of the Socialist Party of America. So she comes from kind of a a well-off background. She eventually meets her husband, Kermit Johnson, and she began to learn about the struggles of like working class people at that time. And so then with her father-in-law, Carl, she formed the Flint branch of the Socialist Party of America in 1931. And Janora recognized the strong potential of organizing women to help the UAW, and that's when she created the Women's Auxiliary offshoot. The Women's Auxiliary was made up of mostly relatives of UAW workers, but also included women working in the factories. So there was a bit of a contingent inside the factory as well. Women helped by walking the picket line, because obviously all the workers were inside in the plant. They couldn't be outside on the picket line, you know, making the spectacle and all that. So they walked the picket line, they cooked and delivered food, ran the first aid station, they raised money, and they set up daycares for the children of striking families. They were kind of running the show to make sure that the strike could actually be successful. Without this, the sit-down strike can only go for so long. Um, Mm -hmm. So this was incredibly important in actually making these strikes possible. Uh, And I I think there's a a bit of a tendency uh, in some history to like write women out of history, but like women were hugely part of this and Mm. they were acting on their own accord. This wasn't like, Oh, they're supporting characters. No, like, like Janora Johnson, look her up. She is cool as fuck. And she kind of pushed back on like UAW leadership, like Walter Ruther, uh, and like really pushed for, Hey, we need some good strike support. And like, this is what, This is what we can do Mm -hmm. to get women involved. And it was the right move, 100%. So great deal of the success is like owed to Janora Johnson and this idea for the women's auxiliary. The strike was going for about two weeks before things kind of came to a head. And they brought in the Flint Police Department, which, I mean, there was already some police presence. But like on January 11th, 1937, they came like full force, riot gear, everything. Right? They were gonna end this fucking strike. They had had enough. They were gonna get the workers out. They had shut off the water already, and they were, you know, GM had had enough. So the police come in, and there is a ruckus. It's just it becomes a bit of a melee. There's actual live gunfire, so they are firing on workers. Uh, not too much, but any no, amount I is mean, too- any, any amount is like yes yeah, sorry, sorry. like yeah, <laughs> just a few friendly bullets. Sorry, right. <laughs> um, yeah. So things did get like out of fucking hand, but the workers were able to fight back, actually. And they were fashioning large slingshots out of car tire inner tubes. And so they were there were these big poles on the roof. And they would take the tire inner tubes and they'd wrap around these poles and they'd pull back with car door hinges and the car door hinges, which obviously have pointy fucking ends. They weighed about a pound and a half each. Oh my God.
4: You're telling me that shooting live rounds at a bunch of factory workers and engineers with unlimited access to material to build things was not quite a great idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so the workers actually held their own, which is tough in in the face of, you know, what they were facing down. Really fucking impressive. I mean, it would have been easy to give up, but uh, they kept it up. They did turn the police away. Eventually, this is largely uh, thanks to Janora Johnson, who also was like at the sound car holding up morale and keeping the women who were part of the women's auxiliary. Engaged in the fight and they were like up against the police, like for real. Um, now, of course, the police didn't want to get filmed outright, you know, just beating up a, a group of women, but that's not to say that they were not trying. They, in fact, were. So, Janora Johnson got up on the sound car, made a rousing speech at the right time. And this is just that little moment in fucking history that the women got a whole new wave of, you know, uh, second wind and. They beat back the cops. The cops actually retreated. They later called this the Battle of the Running Bulls in reference to the police fucking running scared. So about two weeks into the strike, this was kind of an early win. So after this... Mike, did you have something to say?
0: Yeah, it's not that funny. I'll say it anyway. Connor, when you were saying that the cops didn't really want to be filmed trying to beat up these women strikers, what they would do is that they would play You Are My Sunshine on a phonograph so if anybody filled them, it would have to get taken down off of 1930s YouTube oh, or whatever. No, whatever. Like, it's <laughs> terrible. terrible.
4: <laughs> Jesus Christ, Mike. I
0: know. Sorry, buddy. The ba- the bar was already low, Mike. That's why when somebody missed, I was just like, eh, I'll just let it pass. It's not that funny.
3: <laughs> I am kind of curious, Connor, do we have any, like, record of any police casualties from this? Like, do we know for a fact that a cop got domed? By a
0: door hinge because that would be an awesome piece of history I'm surprised they I, went with slingshots out of all the things they had slingshots was the thing they came up with well I mean it gets tough simple but effective yeah I mean it worked yeah
4: Yeah, that's the big point I think is it was so simple to make and I mean getting clocked in the head with what you're describing sounds just yeah. brutal
1: yeah I <laughs> wouldn't want to be caught by that uh, I don't believe there were any police casualties um, damn probably some injuries I, I i i'm sure it is somewhere in the historical record um so you can find it uh but you know i uh i do not have it in my notes at this time so sorry about that
2: ever since i caught COVID, i've been trying to figure out reasons th- that i could like go file a police report in person at the precinct <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah no just do it just tell them say hey uh i think a cop uh gave me covid
2: no, I, just, I want to be discreet about it. I'm not trying to, like, go be obnoxious. I'm just trying to go infect the whole precinct. Like, I, I need to
4: report something
2: stolen. Well, what was it? Somebody stole my pen. i like, we need you to leave. I'm like, not until I file a police report and speak to at least three detectives in a confined space for at least 15 minutes. <laughs> That's praxis. In my culture, it's a sign of respect to cough into your mouth for three to four minutes. <laughs>
1: Oh, man, that's that is good. I I do wish you success in that endeavor.
2: Well, I'm going to wait until I'm not visibly sick. Like when I'm not just sweating bullets. Apparently, because sure. you're
0: vaccinated, you, you shed more virus than uh, people who are unvaccinated and catch it. You know, according to libertarians, I don't know. <laughs> OK, so back to kind of where we were,
1: the police retreat and the next day the uh, National Guard is brought in. Now, they brought in, I think it was a couple thousand National Guard troops. Obviously, this was meant to intimidate workers, but they did claim that it was to keep the peace, right? So after this night of violence, they were trying to, quote unquote, keep the peace. It's hard to say, you know, they seem to not be there to actually break the strike necessarily. Although, Mm -hmm. I don't know, it's pretty fucking intimidating. So... What I will say is they didn't break the strike, um, and in fact, later on, the National Guard didn't enforce a legal injunction that a judge, you know, declared making the strike illegal and that they would have to leave uh, the plant. Um, so that was probably a good thing. I guess this uh, they found out that this judge who um, actually ma- ruled the strike illegal had, I think, he had millions of dollars in holdings in GM at the time, and I mean. Millions in like nineteen thirties dollars. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he was heavily invested in GM, and it's like you know. So that was luckily not enforced. So very important thing for the union there. At this point, you know, events forced the uh, union to kind of accelerate its plans. At this point, so when the workers at Cleveland's Fisher Body plant uh, went on strike in December nineteen thirty six due to two brothers being fired from the assembly line. The UAW immediately announced that it would not settle the Cleveland strike until it reached a national agreement with GM covering all its plans. Uh, At this time, the union made plans to shut down Fisher One and Flint. Okay, that's where we were. Sorry. uh, On December 30th at 8 a.m. So, uh, sorry, I think I got my notes a little bit out of order. I apologize. (laughs) No. So the UAW lead organizer, Bob Travis, uh, immediately called a lunchtime meeting at the union hall across the street from the plant. Explain the situation, and then the members across the street began to occupy the plant. So that's when the strike began. The Flint sit-down strikers set up their own civil system within the strike, which I did already explain. The police, armed with guns and tear gas, attempted to enter Fisher Body 2 plant on January 11th. The women's auxiliary broke all the plant windows they could reach after police released tear gas inside the plant. Okay, this is the part I was looking for. So this actually happens twice. So the women's auxiliary were... A militant uh kind of group so they were there to protect the strike but they were not like against violence or whatever they had clubs and so when the yeah based as fuck um (laughs) so like that's what i mean when i say like this was not just women like oh we're playing supporting roles or whatever no they were there to fucking they were there for real yeah um so uh when the police they were ride or die as the kids say right Yes, one hundred percent. um You're,
0: Sterling, need so, that fucking cackle, man. Like you have no idea how many times I've copied and pasted that into things that I've said that weren't that funny, and then I pop them in there, and I, all of a sudden I'm that much funnier. I'm sorry,
4: that one was actually
0: decent, dude. That's all me, dog. That's right. I got a folder of Sterling cackles. You got no idea, bro. The laugh track.
4: I should.
1: I, I should take a page out of your book there. That's a good idea. I'm going to get everybody's laugh
0: I literally just made that up. I wish I had thought of that sooner because I would have actually done well, that. that would... <laughs> You've thought of it now. It's happening.
1: <laughs> so the um when the uh, police did use, you know, tear gas, the women started to break all the windows they could reach, and that obviously helped dissipate the fucking tear gas, which made it possible for the workers to uh, maintain composure. Uh, strikers inside the plant pelted them with hinges, bottles and bolts. Uh, they fashioned slingshots out of the inner tubes so that we talked about that. Uh, they were able to withstand several waves of attack, eventually ending the standoff. The strikers dubbed this the Battle of Running Bulls, uh, a mocking reference to the police bulls turning in retreat. Fourteen strikers were injured by gunfire during the battle. So, yeah, fourteen. That's actually a lot. That's a fuckload. Now, the retreat came after women rushed the police line and broke through after a rousing speech from Jenora on the sound car. Police not wanting to be seen beating women decided to retreat uh, would be their best option. Uh, now, during the strike, there were solidarity strikes at GM plants across the nation, also pretty important part of that. The next day, the governor, Frank Murphy, sent in 2,000 National Guard troops to keep the peace.
0: So, you had something? I was
4: just going to point out the uh, police beating women thing. Yeah, they, they have gotten pretty good at, at staying discreet about that over the years. Mm. Yeah,
1: yeah, they know it looks bad, uh. So they they were cognizant of it. Yeah, well, um, well,
4: prac, well practiced in it though.
1: Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that was a. I, I feel like I'm repeating myself a little bit. I didn't have enough faith in my notes, and so I was like, "Oh, I didn't write this down." And I'm like, "No, I totally wrote all this down." No, nah, it's all good. I'll take care of it in post. <laughs> okay. So anyway, the next day, uh, they sent in 2,000 uh, National Guard troops to keep the peace. Uh, now, after the success of the Women's Auxiliary, Genora saw the need for an even more militant women's organization. Right? Based. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Very based. So she put out a call for other women to join. The next day, they had about 50 recruits, and in just a few days, they had around 400. This was the start of what's called the Emergency Brigades. Highly recommend looking up the Emergency Brigades on its own because this was an awesome fucking kind of
4: set up here. So this was a little bit more... Go ahead, Sterling. It sounds like we need to make America great again. These sounded like very great times when people had fucking balls. Even if they didn't have balls, they had balls.
1: Yeah. No, it was...
2: We're we're in Striketober right now, so maybe we're seeing a a return to that.
4: I hope so.
0: Yeah. While you were saying the emergency brigade thing, I was thinking, like, we need, like, a drop, just, like, a sound bite for... Sounds like an episode topic. <laughs> what Sterling, you're saying is like, we will always kind of have material to discuss, like these events of people just having the fucking balls to stand up and everything. It's like, what's the most recent one that we could do with the fucking yellow vest thing? Like, I don't even know, like black lives matter protests for all of 2020. It's when are people going to get out the fucking rifles? Like this is going to be a very fed heavy episode. I'm going to have to clip a lot of this because either Sterling is saying it or I am.
4: Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's just like the media has gotten too good at nipping the balls. Like, with Black Lives Matter, they put all the videos of kids running out with sneakers and just completely co opt what's actually happening in the streets. So it's like when normal people are, are watching and, and that would normally see this great cause and say, you know what, I, w- I want to go out and be a part of this. They're like, oh, well, they're just fucking still in shoes and, and computers. Like, that, that's not a real mm-hmm. cause. Like, no, that's this small fraction of this, which, you know, these companies' property, anyway, but it's a small fucking yeah. fraction. But the media has gotten so good at it. You want to know where they learned this from? Fucking Co Pro. <laughs> yeah. Like they they well, learned. The
1: other, <laughs> go ahead. Well, the other thing is, I mean, they get to build off of what happened in the past, right? So that that media and that propaganda just builds on past propaganda. When you have forty yeah. years of it, it's like they don't even have to be that sophisticated. I mean, they are. But it's just a little at a time. And so you've got generations of people who just, you know, back then people could see through the bullshit because the propaganda was sloppy and there wasn't much of it yet. And people could see they're like, oh, hey, these like rich motherfuckers run the town really clearly. It's all been obfuscated and and people have been propagandized. I mean, that their job now is a lot easier than it was back then. Uh, I will say that.
3: Not to be too uncharacteristically optimistic, but I do see that swinging in the other direction in the near future. I think we can see it happening now with the rise of social media and all of us being able to film everything and also people just not trusting mainstream media news sources anymore because, you know, we can see through their bullshit because every person on the street has a camera on them at all times. So we can kind of build this other narrative that, you know if you're already a little distrustful of mainstream news sources, you're probably going to get it from somewhere else. So if we just keep pushing it out there, like, Hey, this is what actually happened. Not what they're saying happened. I do see that swinging in the other direction.
4: God, I I wish I felt that same sentiment because I, I feel, I feel the exact, (laughs) the exact opposite. Sadly. I mean, to me, like the black lives matter movement was fucking huge. The bodies they had in that, the The amount of people that actually got out there and the news in one cycle completely just buried it. And I mean, nothing happened. I mean, what what other reason besides media intervention would explain how a movement that big and and that strong with such a direct message, and you we've we got absolutely nothing. In fact, we got a president who ran on you're going to get absolutely nothing. <laughs>
0: I mean, yeah. still, you got to realize, though, that there are not only two different Americas, there's at least two different Americas. Like there's two different narratives about the entire thing. You know, after we did that episode with uh, James Rewald, we have a TikTok now. Like, there's a turn left to TikTok. I post like a couple of videos. I don't really know what okay. I'm doing over there. But like what I do see is comment sections of other videos, like popular videos and things. And the amount of like people who are, I mean, there's obvious conservatives, but then there's like middling people who don't seem like they're even They're probably apolitical. And they think that Black Lives Matter and Antifa burned down the entire country last summer. That like we burned down every major city last summer and we were just allowed to by the cops. Like the cops looked the other way while we did that. And it was just like, you know, this is Biden's America, even though Trump was still fucking in office at that point. But anyway, then also conversely, (laughs) they believe that January 6th was just like some protesters who just meant well. And they just walked around the Capitol and now they're being unfairly demonized and hunted by the FBI and Biden's deep state. There's this whole other narrative you're not seeing. And I just I wasn't seeing it until I saw TikTok comments and I wish I hadn't seen it. But like, it's a it's a thing. It exists. It's like people have totally different viewpoints of all of this. If you get into
1: cars at all, you will see these other narratives. That's one of the things that like helps me see it like 100. You're like, oh, fuck, because I am around people. Yeah. Guns, too. You see it and you're like, oh, fuck. They actually thought like I know people who like I have met in real life who actually thought Oh, January 6th that was all Antifa.
4: No, I have the family members. I have family members that believe that in their heart and nothing you tell them will convince <laughs> them otherwise. I know. And it, and and the bad part is like what Mike was saying is not only do you have these other Americas, those make up the most of americans. Like most of us in this country. I don't know about country. most of them Dude, mo. I think most most Americans that are in some way political and in some way have some type of political ideology get that from mainstream media.
0: I think that we are. If you're talking about most of political America, I say most of America (laughs) leans probably center center left, and then most of political America leans right to far right because that's just like just how the uh, the ideology works. But like, yeah.
4: Well, I consider our center far right, but yeah, I mean. Same thing. Like I just feel like what we see, and you know, if we see like uh, our segment of the political America, uh, the the leftist segment, if we see that gaining more ability to spread information through social media, which I do agree with, I I think that is absolutely right. That at least within our bubble, we are getting better at it. We are educating ourselves. We are getting smarter. But I do not think we are at least not in a meaningful way, growing our bubble.
3: I'll, I'll make another cautiously optimistic statement and say not yet, because I think that the Black Lives Matter movement was the was the first major movement that had this, this amount of eyes on it, because before this, we didn't really have this size of movement and this level of social media at the same time. So I think this is the first step towards...
4: Towards I what think I'm talking we, about. We, we certainly, in my opinion, we do have did have that in Occupy. I think Occupy Wall Street was a pretty incredible uh, message. The problem with Occupy is it wasn't a message that most Americans could really comprehend. I don't think I, it, I'd hate to say it, but the way that it got framed was a little bourgeois, like petty bourgeois against the uh, primary bourgeois kind of thing is is kind of yeah. how it, it came off in a lot of ways, whereas Black Lives Matter really did feel more uh, proletarian in nature. So I, I definitely I, I have a little more appreciation for that. And that's not the shit on Occupy Wall Street. I'm just saying Black huh. Lives Matter certainly felt more proletarian uh, to me. And I, I thought that was a big difference.
1: Well, don't forget, I feel like a lot of this is when you're living it, it feels like a fucking eternity. But, like, we might look back 20 years from now and be like, damn, shit popped off real fucking quick.
0: (laughs) That's the hope anyway. Mike, you had something? I was just going to say, I feel like, to your point, Connor, it feels like every iteration gets a little more Marxist. Occupy was very disorganized, very, like, no specific ideology whatsoever, just other than we obviously know we're being screwed and we know that something needs to be done, so this is how we're expressing it. Whereas, like, Black Lives Matter is a little more... Militant, obviously, and a little more directed. And that's where you get the conservative freaking out about Black Lives Matter being a Marxist insurrection of the entire country, because there are ties of the Black Lives Matter founders and organizers to Marxist organizations of various types. And it's because they know what works. Like These are people who have studied the Black Panthers and studied previous mm-hmm. organizations for Racial equality and everything, so of course they're going to be tied to Marxism in some way. And I just, I guess, the point of contention is whether Black Lives Matter is the one that's going to blossom into the Marxist uprising in the U.S. or if it's going to be the next one. You know what I mean? There's no way to know. I mean, you you could maybe the next one. It may be, it may
1: be two or three more. But like, it feels like an eternity to us. But like, there is something growing. There is something. People are getting educated. I mean, in in a way that they haven't before. And politically, I mean, like with. You know, stupid podcasts and, and whatnot,
0: you know, whatever it is, well, people, people are working okay with that, that slant is the point. It's like every movement gets a little more Marxist. And then you just have to wonder, like, will people be okay enough with Marxism in general by the time shit gets bad enough that that's our only option or Gen will Z we just is, kind of do? Yeah, Gen Z, well, so I mean, yeah. that's, th- that seems to be, it's
1: growing. It doesn't feel like it. It never feels like it's enough, but it is, There is there is something brewing for sure. I think yeah, that's Carter's why
2: uncharacteristically positive today. Connor and Zach have a good outlook for the future, and my positivity <laughs> is all in my COVID test results. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
5: I, hey, uh, I, can I say something real quick?
0: Yeah. 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 Oh, Brian. Uh, so
5: Brian, so I've been listening to uh, Mike Duncan's Revolution podcast a lot lately. Yeah. He's doing mm, a great I... series on the Russian Revolution. Uh, there's also the the book October by China Mieville. If you want a, like a succinct history of the Russian Revolution, and with that, like it built on itself. There was the revolution of 1905 that got all these Marxists and uh, you know, Lenin especially, to uh, really get their organizing in gear, uh, even if they were in exile. And then there was the February revolution that was a liberal democracy that, uh, where the Czar uh, was deposed. And then there was months and months of brewing, uh, agitation, strikes, and uh, militancy by the Bolsheviks until they actually had the October Revolution. So it's not, like, I'm really hopeful that, you know, there will be Occupy, there will be Black Lives Matter, and then hopefully there will be something in the future that is uh, a more lasting revolution. But who knows? Who knows what's going to happen in the future? We could all be dead from climate change, you know, five years from now. Who knows?
4: And that's kind of the point I'd like to make is I agree with all of you guys but that last point and I've said this many times on this podcast is there's an amount of time I see it taking for an actual real proletarian revolution in this country and there's an amount of time I see it taking for climate change to bring us the fucking yeah. water wars and one of those look much closer to me yeah. than the other and that's yeah. my problem.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Even Sterling's outlook is slightly more optimistic
1: than mine. <laughs> well, all right, let's not get too doomer here. We're uh, we're back in history here. <laughs> yeah, let's go back to the, uh, the rockin' 30s. What was going on then.
4: <laughs> was like Everything everybody. was good.
1: <laughs> well, I think it's just, it's important to study this history, specifically relating around Walter Ruther, to learn from that, because I think the labor movement is probably going to become very, very relevant very, very soon. So we got to learn from these fucking mistakes.
0: We can only hope that people will conduct themselves as well as Walter Reuther during the next Great Depression. That is going to be in about three seconds. Look at my watch here. <laughs> you know, yeah. A <laughs>
2: lot, of, lot of problems coming. Well, I mean, we're basically fighting for the same things that he was fighting for, so... I'm really surly lately that we are fighting for a 12 hour day at my work. I'm like, we've Dude, gained nothing in 150 years uh, of labor.
4: That's crazy.
1: Um, all right, back to history here. So obviously we've got now the emergency brigades are born, you know, they come up from the women's auxiliary, which was that strike support uh, that was critical in these major strike actions. Uh, now in early February, uh, 1937, Janora uh, and her husband, Kermit, Pushed other UAW leaders, uh, which includes uh, Walter and Victor Ruther, and they pushed them to go after GM Plant Four, and this was called the Hell Hole at the time because it was, um, as you can imagine, a pretty shitty workplace. Now, GM Plant Four is where all the domestic engines were produced for all GM cars, so this is like the most critical fucking plant they could get. Now, it was extremely risky, and the Ruthers. Pushed back uh, initially, but uh, eventually being convinced by Janora Johnson that they should go for plant four. Now, the reason behind this was at the time they're on strike in Fisher one uh, and two, and I believe there's also a Cleveland strike as well, and solidarity strikes uh, at other GM plants. But plant four is still chugging along, putting out engines, right? So they can still get cars out. Plant four is kind of like the fucking that's the gem right that's if they can get that they can actually cripple all of gm production and when the strike's already been going for a few weeks workers aren't getting paid things are getting there's there's some fucking pressure right the idea was to unionize plant four to kind of boost the movement right add to their numbers cripple GM a little bit more and to increase morale for those striking workers in plant, you know, Fisher one. So they knew that there were, by the way, this is what, what I'm going to describe now is considered by some to be the greatest strike strategy in all of labor history in the United States. So this is
0: a big one. Real praxis hours. Let's hear it.
1: Okay. So they knew at this time that there were the GM had spies in their midst, right? So they knew that the companies had hired people. They were keeping tabs on the union, uh, and they used this to their advantage. So they made a decoy plan that they wanted those spies to hear. What the decoy plan was was to unionize Plant Nine. Plant Nine was just a, it was a smaller plant. Similar kind of thing. This is essentially just another plant um, in Flint. What they did was they said, oh yeah, we're going for plant nine. They they pushed for it. All the workers thought this, the women's auxiliary, everybody thought that the, it was plant nine. That was the big push, right? So what happened was, and this is, this is fantastic. The GM spies run back to GM. They let them know it's going to be plant nine. They're going to unionize plant nine. So what they did was they brought all of GM security and all of Flint police, they were ready. The day the strike was supposed to be, they were outside plant nine and the workers, as they were instructed to do, they did a sit down strike right now. We know that the sit down is incredibly fucking effective workers sit down. And of course the police are already there. They, they get right to fucking business, right? They start, you know, with the tear gas and everything in the plants women's yeah well and and the women's auxiliary is there and they start breaking windows the whole nine yards so the tear gas isn't as effective because obviously it's well ventilated now that the women have broken all of gm's windows which is great breaking windows is very fun yes love it anyone teenager knows that yes (laughs) um so the battle there is going on for about 45 minutes or so and eventually, you know, whatever, the cops are distracted. And there are a few key emergency brigades lieutenants, right? Other w- women who are leading, you know, battalions within the emergency brigades who are then let in on the real plan, which is to unionize Plant Four. The entire fucking time that this strike has been happening at Plant Nine, they've been in Plant Four organizing workers, getting people on board with joining the fucking union, right? so this is all happening concurrently all of the police every single one of them all the security guards they're all at plant nine they left plant four to just the workers the union's been in there the whole fucking time so the few uh women's auxiliary members who were then let in on the plan kind of slowly meander on over to plant four uh trying not to arouse any suspicion And they successfully do that. Now, of course, it takes time to organize the workers in plant four. So that's still going on. And eventually the police figure out what's going on. So then they start to go over to plant four. Now, this part, the women's emergency brigades stand in front of the gates with their clubs, whatever, and they just stall the police. They're, you know, every little fucking trick in the book. They're, you know, doing whatever they can. Uh, and they successfully hold them off for, you know, another half an hour or so. And just as they can't really hold off the, the police and the security guards anymore,
0: did they do that thing where they like pull up the skirt a little bit and show like their mid cap? <laughs> it's the yeah. threes, right? Like, uh, yes, there's there's
1: <laughs> surely there there's some of that. There's they do the thing where their tongue rolls out of their mouth and then their eyeballs <laughs> pop out and they <laughs> go. <laughs> Oh good. Well and of course as you can imagine for the time they're underestimating. They all oh, these are just women and they're they're not important or whatever. Um little do they know this is all part of the fucking plan. They know what's going on and these women fucking meant business and they did it. They held off the police and the security guards and by the time they were just going to be getting in through the gates they raised up a UAW flag over the plant and the plant was unionized. So they started singing solidarity forever as the workers walked out of the plant so oh, this yeah. yeah this was a huge huge win uh, and this comes after quite a bit of time this is again this goes down in like labor history is like the greatest strategy to use would it work today i don't know but this was a big fucking deal
3: quick question cool. here what is the timeline on this so this is all happening within the course of one day between plant nine no. and plant Four. Oh okay. yeah plant four Yes, that was one day,
1: uh, one morning, okay. I believe. So, yeah, that was all. Yeah, that happened quick. Um were they able now, to have
2: the uh, spies not find out
1: what was going on? So they knew essentially that the upper, upper leadership they knew couldn't be spies, but they kept it up at the top. There was no leaks below that. So like even like lieutenants in the emergency brigades, right? Uh, they're pretty high up. These are very committed women and they still weren't actually knowing what was going on until it was time to go over to plan four. Um. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they kept it very, very close to the vest is how they I did mean, that's it. like
0: a that's like a major tactical question for anything, whether you're doing organized crime or organized labor. You, you want to find the rats like you want to find out. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen the movie The Departed. Fucking love that movie. But like <laughs> part of that is like trying to find out who is the rat to the police. So you filter down wrong information that you try to find out when that comes yeah. back to you because you also have rats in their organization it's crazy to think about
1: well i think part of what i'm trying to get at with this whole study is i mean this is going to be a sloppy it's not going to come out right but fuck it whatever i'm trying to maybe suggest that organized crime did some they had effective methods and perhaps organized labor could learn a thing or two
2: i've Take also so, you know about in coal mines Organizers would put people into a mine and that person's job was to at no point ever associate with the union or seem like a union person in any way, cozy up with management and they would try and suss out everybody who was friendly with management and if they found out or if there were people who were anti-union in the mines, then they would go back to management and be like, yo, that person is trying to form a union and get everybody was not on their side fired by management
1: that's that's a pretty good actually that's a really clever strategy lately i
2: I should like travel around and get jobs at like john deere plants where they're on strike and just destroy equipment it just seems like like, everyone would hate me for like a week or two and until they're like yo that dude just did six million dollars worth of damage what a hero.
4: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, ne- next time a cop pisses me off, I'm just going to anonymously send in a letter to the precinct that he's trying to form a union.
1: <laughs> well, don't forget, they allow unions.
0: They're cop yeah, unions, which guess, are not real unions.
4: I guess you can't really form a union because of the existing. No, cop unions are the only unions, unions
0: that America is cool with.
1: Yeah, bastards. God. Every one of them. You know, Connor, uh,
5: when you were talking about the uh, the people raising the flag over the plant, that just reminded me yeah. of that video game, uh, Tonight We Riot, where like you can capture factories and like get more workers on your side. I don't yeah, know. I haven't
1: <laughs> played that yet, but it it's sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> it's such <laughs> a fun game. What is this? Okay, we're on another tangent, but okay. Never mind. it's a fuck. No, hold on, we're doing it. We're we embrace the tangents here. Fuck it. <laughs> um, Tonight We Riot is a. It's like a video arcade game where you basically play like socialist organizers and like you're in the streets fucking shit up fucking with the cops it's pretty great
2: okay yeah i just need you to repeat the name cuz i didn't hear it i've already pulled it up and i'm ready to download that after the podcast
4: <laughs> tonight we ride <riot. laughs> i got 11
2: more days of quarantine i'm bored as
1: fuck yeah this will this will help help get you through for sure
4: uh, this was yeah. just made during like the covid no there's a 2016 okay it's on the nintendo switch i will download this
3: very cool game. Very fun. One of the only games where you play as a group of people. You're wow. not like a main character. You're just like controlling a mob, basically. That's okay. running through the streets, just smashing cops and taking over factories.
2: I, thought I, had heard of this. I have heard of this because it's the game that was made by Means
1: TV. Interesting. I knew I saw it on Means TV. I wasn't sure if they actually made it.
2: The production company online is listed as Means Interactive.
3: Sweet. Huh. I think they may have just bankrolled it i'm not sure that they i think i forget their level of involvement but i think some developers had the idea and were getting it started and then means kind of backed them Oh well, yeah. which i guess does make them the production company by definition yeah
1: whatever works all right anyway so we've now got plant whatever fisher one is on strike they got plant nine was doing its thing and they unionized plant four so shit's going pretty well for the union Now, GM at this point sought another legal injunction to fine the sit downers $15 million if they did not leave the plant. Now, this is about, I think, 2,000 workers on strike at this point. This $15 million in today's dollars is about $285 million. So it's just, it's an absurd, uh, ridiculous amount. It's just fucking crazy. All right. So this is the judge that had a huge amount invested in GM. Uh, so this is the guy who had millions of dollars in GM stock. Democratic governor Frank Murphy refused to enforce the injunction in a win for workers. This is one of those like early questions I I brought up that like, hey, those like decisions, those little moments in history that like gave us a win is this asshole fucking Democrat, which I'm no I'm no fan of Democrats, but like this motherfucker was in the right spot at the right time and he was beholden to labor to some extent. And he didn't enforce an injunction that could have like ended this shit. And I think that's an important little note that, like, I don't know, sometimes those little details matter. I don't so, know. It does
0: make me wonder why. Like it makes me wonder what other forces acting on him. Like
1: Oh, he... back in back in the day, Democrats were actually beholden to labor because yeah. uh they, I mean they were a real political force at the time. Not today. You know, today but it's yes, a joke.
4: I was just going to say, back on our last tangent on the Tonight We Riot, yeah, I won't take long, but when, when I Googled it, <laughs> one of the images that came up is, I guess it's from like a little movie scene during the game, and it's a still of a newspaper. Uh, the newspaper is Factory Town Herald, and the title reads City in Flames, Desperate Concern Over Shop Windows Spreads, and then there's a quote from one of the residents that says, why can't they just get peacefully beaten?
3: <laughs> there's there's tons of those in between every level, and they're all just fucking gold. There's That's so great. many of those. This
4: game looks
1: incredible.
3: I can't wait.
1: Fuck yeah. All right, I got to play this while well, I'm, I'm in between jobs. I have like a three-week break. I got to play this game now. <laughs> so anyway, it, it's important that at the time, Democrats had some kind of force acting on them in in terms of organized labor because organized labor at the time was actually kind of strong. So the strikes at Fisher one and two uh, and plant four stopped 90% of all of GM's production for five and a half weeks. So after five and a half weeks. Yeah. Five and a half weeks. Huge. Which is part of the reason, again, it was important to get plant four, right? Because Fisher one and two, they could still kind of hobble along. But once you get plant four, you're now really crippling them um so yeah. they stopped it for five and a half weeks uh GM finally broke and agreed to
4: negotiate with the UAW um so the after this sorry, quick question by the time this is all yeah. said and done uh the final cherry on top is going to be how Reagan fucked all of these movements up right
1: <laughs> no <laughs> no i I hate to tell you come sooner oh, than that. Oh, God. <laughs> That's hardly, buddy. That's oh, hardly, bro.
4: Oh, God. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, it comes sooner than that. But, you know, Reagan didn't help. After this, GM recognized the union in all of its domestic plants. So it's not just, like, Detroit plants got this. Remember all those solidarity strikes? The UAW had some fucking leverage here, and they used it to get recognition in every GM plant. So this brought around 75 factories under UAW representation. This is a huge fucking win. They finally brought the company to its knees. And this is the first of the big three. Now, all the documentaries I've seen kind of skip over the next bit. I'm not really sure why. I think it was just kind of like, eh, more of the same. um, Probably a little less exciting. But next, they they unionized Chrysler. And they did this, like, I can't remember. It was somewhere in the range of, like, one to three or four months later. Like, it was a pretty short amount of time. And then they're on to Chrysler. Chrysler had like 9 plants in the Detroit area and they got them to unionize. More sit-down strikes again super fucking effective and now the UAW actually had some experience. They knew how these strikes went and after about 4 weeks Chrysler was now unionized. So oh,
0: yeah.
1: yeah, so in a pretty short period of time GM and Chrysler both recognized the union. So
0: I just like
3: to point out here that like these guys really knew what they were doing. And as far as like learning from their strategies, not only in the individual strikes, but having this overall plan of like, okay, Ford's the big one. Ford is the difficult one. We need to start building momentum with the other two and work our way up and then attack Ford Once we have all of this support from the other two of the big three already in our pocket, it's just really incredible to see that they had this, great overall plan from the beginning
4: yeah, yeah. and
3: enacted it so well.
4: Obviously, Sterling, go time. ahead. Yeah, obviously at this time, I take it Chrysler had not been absorbed into GM yet. Uh, that Chrysler is still separate from
1: GM. Uh, sure. Chrysler is now with Fiat and Stellantis is the new name. They just merged oh, with somebody. I oh, forget. I, th- I thought GM they were under Dodge. Okay. Well, Chrysler owned Dodge, actually. Or Chrysler on Dodge. Yeah. Okay. That that's where I was. So, following the unionization efforts at GM and Chrysler, which were both successful, in still same year, right? This is all happens very quickly. We're still in 1937, and there's an important event we need to talk about in the efforts to organize the Ford plant, or well, Ford in general, and this is called the Battle of the Overpass. This was uh, an incident that happened on May 26th, 1937, in which Walter Ruther and members of the United Auto Workers clashed with Ford Motor Company security guards at the River Rouge plant complex in Dearborn, Michigan. Now, if you remember from the past episodes, the River Rouge plant was like the big Ford plant. And what do they call it? The Ford Service Department was basically Henry Ford's fucking thugs led by Harry Bennett. Harry Bennett, the thug who, you know, brought guns into work and shot in his office and had uh, a Scooby-Doo castle with uh, lions and tigers. And he'd bring the lions into work and like paint them for some reason, like do paintings of them. Yeah, I think I forgot that part when I introduced Harry Bennett before. He literally brought the fucking lions. Well, what? Just normal shit. Totally average shit. Yeah, totally regular. Brought the lions into the Ford plant to like fucking do paintings of them because, you know, again, he's intimidating workers. I mean, I don't want to unionize when it's like there's a threat of fucking lions. Uh, it's that scary.
2: He <laughs> said he was painting lions, and I'm a train wreck right now. So I'm just like, what was he painting on his lions?
1: <laughs> so, yeah. Our wonderful friend, Harry Bennett, who we've met in a previous episode, this is the guy who's going to be trying to stop the unionization effort at Ford. And I don't think I mentioned it in a past episode. I, I haven't verified whether he was on the Michigan Parole Board or if he was just really connected to the Michigan Parole Board. But one of the ways that they would get their thugs for stopping unions was to get violent offenders paroled out of prison and into the service of Harry Bennett and the Ford service department. So this guy is sitting on or is very much intertwined with the parole board and they're finding the most violent criminals and being like, yeah, they should be paroled. Oh yeah. They'll, we have a job for them at Ford motor company. And it was nice. beating the shit. Yeah. It was beating the shit out of workers and stopping unions. So that's pretty fucked up. And again, prisons exist to like not solve actual problems and they're inhumane and they create conditions that cause fucking awful harm. Now, part of it is it's not like I don't want people to like get the sense that like, oh, all prisoners who are violent offenders are inherently bad people or whatever. There was a certain coercion here, right? So Harry Bennett gets you out of fucking prison, but there was a threat that like, Hey, if you don't beat the shit out of workers, the way that I like, you're going back. So yeah.
2: yeah. Which, so you know, I, in a way, it's still a threat that exists with like paroled convicts. Like you're, you're at the whim of your employer. because yeah. They will yeah. make that threat.
1: Yeah, no, of course. And so I just like, you know, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea of where I'm coming from when I call these people thugs and whatever. It's it, it's a term that I'm using, but really, these are people who are coerced into this is a job and they need it. Yeah, and I mean, literally hired guns
0: to it. beat people up. I mean, it's, it's like the definition yeah. of thugs. It's not like the demeaning way that racist conservatives say it now.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. So anyway, the UAW knew that this was going to be violent and this was going to be tough. Again, we know that they've got a strategy, they've built some momentum, and it is time to go after Ford. So what happened was they clashed with these security guys, and after images of the incident were released to the public, support for Henry Ford and his company greatly decreased. Okay, so here's the story. The UAW had planned a leafleting campaign entitled Unionism, Not Fordism, At the pedestrian overpass over Miller Road at gate four of the River Rouge plant complex. They had a permit from the city of Dearborn, and they were invited and they invited some press and religious leaders to the leafleting effort, right? So this is just they're handing out little fucking pamphlets. Nothing threatening, nothing at all. They have a permit, they're on public property. Okay. No big deal. Then the Ford Service Department, again led by Harry Bennett, confronted the organizers. They beat them mercilessly. These board company thugs come out and they just beat the living shit out of Walter Ruther. And there was a bunch of women from, again, the Women's Auxiliary who were there assisting in the uh, leafening effort. They also beat up Richard uh, Finkelstein, I think his name is, or God damn it. I'm hoping I, I'm remembering it correctly. He's an important player. <laughs> He kind of comes up later in my notes, Um, but Richard Mm. Finkelstein, I believe, is his name. He was actually leading, but this is a story that we're telling about Walter Ruther, so he's kind of the protagonist of our story. But the two are there together. They're both UAW leadership, and they're going through this effort. What ended up happening was they invited these reporters. The reporters wanted a picture of them leafleting, like, in front of a Ford sign or something, right? This was the place to do it. So they're on public property still, but... The Ford Service Department confronted them and beat the shit out of them. I mean, and they were this shit is rough. Like, this stuff makes you think twice. You're like, fuck, man, how much do you want to put on the line? Because like they were not fucking, they were not fucking around. The uh the Ford Service Department confronted the organizers, they beat them mercilessly. One man was thrown off the overpass and fell 30 feet, breaking his back. Jesus. Yes. This this is they were not fucking around.
4: How do these companies still exist? Like, that's the crazy thing to me is like people. Yeah, because we let them. Yeah, I mean, and no one knows it. That's a tr- No one knows any of this. <laughs> but it's like the, the right wingers argument. And I, and I love to throw this back at them is just, you know, the market will regulate itself. But as soon as the actual workers in that market start doing anything against the market, it's no longer the market regulating itself. The market regulating itself is just the right to go buy another brand of toothpaste. But for some reason, workers yeah. uh, collectivizing is is not the market regulating itself. And I mean, it's it just blows yeah. my mind that we can we live in a civilization where these companies can still exist today with these just terrible atrocities. Like fucking what is it? Hugo Boss, who made all the Nazi uniforms. How is that still a thing? I was mm-hmm. Chiquita, which is literally United Fruit Company. United How- Fruit yeah, how How's that a thing? How are they sold in
1: publics? like it's crazy no and, and no one knows any of this. It's wild. You're just like how did you you live through this? I don't understand like nobody I mean, cares
2: in the nineties when coca-cola was outed for having uh organizers killed in the third world
1: or yeah global South that was
4: a real thing. How did they exist
1: yeah well you'll be uh you'll be shocked to learn that uh, it's later in my notes, but uh no one was prosecuted for these uh beatings nah <laughs> what a shock
4: <laughs> what <laughs> yeah yeah you'll be even you'll be even more fascinated to learn that these companies are still in business <laughs> and thriving
1: they didn't
2: execute those guys because the market's going to sort it out for
1: them that's basic economics yeah I won't hold my breath <laughs>
0: It's funny because, like, you guys will bring up, like, Coca-Cola killing striking workers or and union organizers or United Fruit Company turning into Chiquita Banana and totally washing the slate clean or Hugo Boss whatever. And it's like, this stuff, for us, it sounds like it's it's like old hats. Like, should we really even bring that up again? Like, certainly <laughs> everyone who listens to us knows about this shit already. It's like, but no, like. Nope, they don't. You can't harp on it enough. Yeah, no, it, it's all interconnected and you have to keep saying it.
2: It's not the same, but people seem to have already forgotten that last year was one of the largest general strikes
0: in the history of the world. In oh India. my God, like there were so many strikes in 2020 and there were over 900 wildcat strikes that I know of. And I, I still can't even find that list again. Like I saw that list and I cannot find it again. I, I'm trying to find it, but like there were wow. over 900 strikes. and, oh, like, and Brandon, you're talking about India, news, right? right? Yeah, I'm talking about
2: India when, when it was Dude, It was huge. such a large scale that I couldn't even the zeros were was it at it was like tens of millions of people i believe
4: the photos from india were unreal just tens of thousands of people marching down streets waving communist flags and shit not a single bit of that made its way to mainstream media so weird
2: unprecedented not a fucking peep in american
1: media it really was yeah no and 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 that's true for current events. And it's true for history, too. I mean, that's why you can talk to people and they're like, Walter, who? Ford did what?
2: Yep. Especially familiar with Walter Ruther until we started doing our podcast and then his name just kept popping up.
3: Yeah. Jesus Christ. Just a quick aside. I wanted to get the amount of numbers right because in my head I was like, was it 20 million or 200 million? Strikers in India, and I was like, "It wasn't 200. That's ridiculous." And it wasn't. It was 250 million Jesus, Jesus. joined the national strike in India.
2: <laughs> That's what I said. It was literally such a large scale. I couldn't even remember where the zeros were. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah
3: I had the same thought. I was like, "It's. It was either 20 or 200. 200 is ridiculous. It was probably 20." So I looked it up.
4: No, nope, 250 <laughs> million people.
0: That's it's like almost the entire million
4: U.S. <laughs> on Earth. Wild. Well, I'll say this, and I know I say this a lot, but we should actually put it on our schedule and and do an episode on that. I mean, that that is super important. Yeah. It's something I'm not properly educated on.
1: Yeah, I'd listen to that episode.
4: Maybe that's our next collab. I do know that
1: seeing a dude riding an elephant waving a communist flag is one of the sickest <laughs> images I've seen in my life.
4: <laughs> that's pretty dope. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe after we get through this, we'll do that that together next.
0: Yeah, we'll have another eight-part series on the Strikes in yeah. India. Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel like the uh, the car podcast probably isn't qualified for that one. I don't
0: know. Yeah, we'll figure it out. <laughs> I'm
1: wildly
2: fascinated by that, and I don't know enough about it, so I'd be into it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like there's a little too much alcohol and drugs involved for us to get it done. Yeah. of <laughs> All right, so uh, back to Battle of the Overpass. Yeah, shit was bad. They really beat the uh, folks up. One man fell 30 feet, breaking his back. He did later die from his injuries. Uh, women helping in the effort, uh, which was, you know, the women's auxiliary, uh, were also roughed up and beaten. One of the women, and this is one of our heroes that we introduced in the first episode, Catherine Gell's, duked it out with one of the Ford goons and left him pretty sore by the time she was finished with him. So good for her.
3: Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Based. That's, that's my kind of woman. Yeah. Um, Walter was uh, Walter himself was beaten. Uh, He was picked up and thrown into the concrete multiple times to like these people would like pick him up, lift them like over their heads and throw him the fuck down. Uh, Then he was he was uh, kicked down the stairs, which is like two flights of stairs. Uh, He was kicked down those and those are concrete, by the way. Not pleasant. After this beating, Ford security then turned their attention to the press. They grabbed cameras and smashed them they roughed up the fucking journalists. They didn't give a fuck. Here was the thinking. They were going to erase all evidence that this ever happened. So the beating was never going to get out. Didn't matter. Um, Mm -hmm. there was a story that they chased one of the journalists for five miles, five miles on foot on foot. They ran after the guy. Yeah. Right. One reporter, Scotty Kilpatrick, managed to get away with some images. Now, what happened was he ran away from the scene and he had his camera and I'm not some camera aficionado, so I don't know how the fuck this works. It wasn't film. He used glass plate negatives, whatever the fuck that means. So what happened was he's like running away, whatever he gets in his car. And I guess he like he had some spare blank glass plate negatives that he put in the camera, took the old ones out, and hid them under a seat in the car. And he gives them a camera with blanks in it. So Ford Service catches up with them. They take this these blanks. They think they've got every bit of evidence that this ever happened, right? And of course, Ford, they, they're assuming that nothing's going to come out. The Ford did a press conference in which they lied about the whole event. They said that, what? oh, you know what? Oh, it's not, it's it's (laughs) egregious. It's egregious though. They said that, oh, you know, these UAW guys, they were leafleting and our workers just were upset and they beat them up. They said (laughs) it was just the workers that beat them up. They wanted, Uh, they hated the union so much that they beat up the union organizers.
0: Well, Um, I buy it. No more questions need to be asked.
1: so they they get this press conference and they're like oh the uaw they were here causing trouble and our workers came to our aid and beat them
4: up and whatever blah blah blah
1: they think true. that
4: yeah no technically you're, you're right well, that's technically true to,
2: you know, yeah. yeah
4: they were hired employees you know those were technically workers that were beating them. A
3: worker might be a generous term for them <laughs> our specifically yeah. hired union busting thugs just
4: happened <laughs> yeah. to be there.
3: And be angry at these Control
4: them. <laughs> I would have loved to be sitting on that board meeting when someone's like, you know, they're employees. We could spin it this way. Mm. Yeah.
1: Speaking of board meetings, again, don't know if I mentioned in a previous episode, uh, Henry Ford didn't like his board that much. And like, He went into, like, Harry Bennett's office and they would shoot at light fixtures on the ceiling to, like, intimidate the board above them. So, like, yeah, he didn't give a fuck. He was a bad motherfucker. He was shooting at his own fucking board of directors. I just wonder
0: I wonder how many of those stories are, like, overblown because I feel like if he was really that much of a a don't-give-a-fuck badass, he would have killed at least one of those board members or at least nicked him in the knee or something. Like, (laughs) something. We would have heard a story. I feel like they're, like... Yeah, man, we were totally shooting light fixtures, even though those guys were right above us. We don't give a fuck, bro. And they were really just like (laughs) shooting like the the spittoon in the corner or some shit. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I think a lot of
1: this comes from workers too, though. They they knew there were guns being fired in that office for sure. So anyway, after all this, uh, 16 unionists were injured uh, in this effort, uh, including seven women. So there were seven women who were like beaten enough to be injured in this. Yeah. Um, then, of course, there was a hearing in front of the NLRB, right? This is a newly created organization. I think it was, I can't remember if it was 1935 or 1936. The National Labor Relations Board was created. And so this is one of those hearings where they uh, brought Ford in front of them for all the awful practices. And, of course, they were bound to have violated labor law and whatnot. Now, this is important. Henry Ford had a son, Edsel Ford, who we've introduced before, and Ford's wife, Clara Ford, sided with the workers uh, after the Battle of the Overpass. They said, all right, shit went a little too far. These workers probably could use a union. Like, what's the big deal? The other plants have unions. It seems like the workers have some real grievances here. We should we should do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's an important note. The NLRB went after Ford and Harry for their actions. uh, But two months uh, later, 75,000 out of 87,000 workers at the Rouge plant were laid off. So that's a big amount. Yeah. Uh, Henry Ford, not into recognizing the union. And apparently business wasn't going well enough that they needed all those workers. So like they were in a precarious situation, unfortunately. At the time, that effort wasn't successful. Okay, so the Battle of the Overpass got a lot of good attention. There were, Those pictures from Scotty Kilpatrick went around the country, right? And Ford looked bad. Uh, they lost a lot of fucking points for this. But it wasn't enough to get a union at, at the time. It was another few years later, but in April of 1941, workers walked out to protest the firing of eight union members, and it forced the plant closed. Ford said that he would shut down every plant worldwide before he signed a union contract. Remember, this is in 1941. But then his wife, Clara, threatened divorce if he didn't sign the union contract. And the <laughs> next day, Henry Ford finally gave in. So uh, this is, yeah, this goes back to that that question, Those those little pivotal moments in history. I don't know how long Henry Ford could have held out He had a whole fucking service department designed to stop unions and they were brutal, but it was his wife who threatened divorce. And that was, that was enough to give for him to give in. Now he probably would have given in at some point anyway. I, you know, I feel like a lot of people nowadays, especially they marry people who largely agree with them. So like the thought that like your spouse could ever, yeah, that, and that to me is like, that is a, Little detail in history is like, I don't know what it would have looked like had that not been the case, but like there was personal pressure on Henry Ford to recognize the union. So in 1943, Edsel, his son, died of stomach cancer. Edsel had been president of Ford, but Henry maintained total control of the company. So like he had complete control. Edsel Ford didn't really do that much. But after his death, Ford sought to make Harry Bennett the president of Ford. But again, his wife, Clara, said no. So Harry joined the board of directors instead and conspired with Henry to draft a codicil. I don't know what that is. Well, I do know what it is. It's some kind of amendment to his will, whatever. And to his will, that would amend the will to give Harry complete control of Ford Motor Company after his death instead of his grandson, Henry Ford II. At the time, FDR was president and Henry Ford II was like off in the war in 1943. And Roosevelt actually called to have him brought back to the States. By by what side
2: he was fighting for. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah uh, with Her- with Henry it's a good question but uh, obviously with, with the American side Roosevelt whatever drafted his little order to bring him back home to take over Ford and again little moments in history if not for this move Harry fucking Bennett would have taken control of Ford Motor Company and I cannot imagine what what things might have looked like so like the union was recognized in like 1941 after the firing of eight union organizers, there was another, you know, strike and there's a whole bit to it. But in the end, Ford was finally unionized and it was largely because of personal pressure on him. But Henry Ford, II was only made the president with control of the company because he was brought home from the war to stop Harry Bennett from taking over the company, which they were doing yeah. some fucking maneuvering so then i have i want to find the note here just because i think it's uh it'll be a good end to the episode where do i have it you can cut this out because this is the part that makes me look stupid um <clears throat> yeah and i mean that's our thing don't steal from <laughs> us yeah <laughs> all right well why don't i have this Henry Ford falls down the fucking stairs and like and dies, and I feel like that's an important <laughs> end to this story. Why is this not in my notes? Hold on, I will find that's, this. That's pretty badass. Well,
0: no, because um, it's, the, it's the fucking uneven stairs that he made, right?
1: No, it wasn't. That was Harry Bennett's uh, castle. Oh, okay. Then. Yeah, no, Henry Ford was just an old, doddering old man. He was like losing his fucking mind already. Okay.
0: I misremembered that. Um, what was it Dollop episode or? Uh... Yep. Again, this is such a fucking bizarre story. It's hard to keep it straight. So,
1: anyway, in 1941, Ford was officially unionized, and to be fair, once it was unionized, they just said, alright, fuck it, just unionize all the plants here, and they actually gave the UAW the best contract of all the big three. Rather than fight with them, right, after that horrible, horrible fight, they finally just gave in, and, and you know, the plants were unionized. So, uh, through the leadership of Walter and Victor Ruther, as well as obviously the communists in the UAW, the big three auto manufacturers were unionized. And then, of course, we have all this jockeying for power at the Ford Motor Company in 1943 after Edsel Ford's death. Uh, and on it was April 7th, 1947. Uh, we're jumping ahead just a little bit because I do want to let the listeners know it was April 7th, 1947 that Henry Ford fell down the fucking stairs in his house and died like an asshole. Um, uh, he bled. Uh-huh. Yeah. Bled out of his fucking head and yeah. Fuck him.
0: <laughs> Rest in peace, bozo. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the story of the GM sit down strike, the unionization at Chrysler and how they finally organized at Ford, which was Violent. It was a struggle. It was very fucking difficult and required a lot of planning and a lot of luck, unfortunately, which is the part of the story that makes me the most uncomfortable. And, you know, do with that what you will. But there are there are pressures on capitalists that are outside of organized labor sometimes. Be they societal pressures, family pressures, whatever it may be. We need to figure out how to, I think, harness that kind of power
0: a little bit. So that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Get your uh, get your boss's mistress. Uh get familiar with her. See what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: And and those are the kinds of moves to make. So um yeah. I'm After not this...
2: specific here, but I have exerted those pressures in my past. <laughs> <laughs> <Based>. <laughs> um, all
1: right. So going forward in our in our next episodes, we're finally gonna get into the like post-war period and the you know, political jockeying within the UAW, the big clash between the communists and the social democrats, whatever, Walter and the communists is essentially the split that's coming. Then we've got the merger, this the CIO merging with the AFL to become the AFL-CIO and the switch to unions trying to wield political power in American life, uh, as well as the civil rights movement and all of that. Labor plays a big part in from the late forties through to the sixties and beyond. And so that's kind of where we're taking the story next. And guess what? There's going to be more successes and more failures to learn from in all of that. So
2: that's where we're at. Stories about people hating Walter Ruther for the same things that Walter Ruther hated capitalists for. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Brandon's going to have a a big bit. um, Once we get into the sixties, because
0: that's going to become very important. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I can't wait. Alright, we'll wrap it up there. Yeah, hopefully by then, Brandon, you're feeling a little better. You won't be so uh wrecked by COVID or the vaccine will have at least kicked it out of your body. So then uh yeah, looking forward to that. That'll be fun. In
2: in one like in like three months, I've had corona and limes, so Bug catcher. Damn. Well I mean, you know, no, they you know those two things typically go together, just not in that fashion.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, I gotcha. <laughs> I didn't even I didn't even catch that shit.
1: It, by the way, Brandon, it's driving me nuts. It is Lyme disease. It is not Limes. This...
4: But that was a solid joke. I just want to say Oh, I'm... the joke no, is I'm... on point. Yeah, no. Brandon's I'll, got was... the best jokes. It just went right over my head. Yeah, I was too ignorant to uh process it quick enough to
0: respond, but no, it's honestly. Sterling is literally sitting there with a corona in his hand and just <laughs> didn't pick up on it.
4: What the he fuck is he back. talking about? <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's like seeing roots, That was literally what made me think of it. <laughs>
4: do
0: you guys want to plug anything? I'm going to skip the plugs. I'm starving. Fuck it. Yeah, fuck the plugs. They can listen to the next episode. We've got enough of them our, by this point.
2: I'm just going to stop <laughs> our our, t- our listeners to not listen to us.
0: <laughs> that's that's a plug right there. All right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. I can't wait to do it again the next time. We'll pick up on uh, part four of the Cars and Comrades Walter Ruther series next time. Thank you all. Later,
1: everybody. Right, oh yeah. Later.
5: Later. 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 All profit is value extraction, and that means that all profit is theft from you. There's a 7,000 RPM, where everything fades. The machine becomes weightless. It just disappears. And all that's left is a body moving through space and time. 7,000
2: RPM. That's where you need it. You feel it coming. Clips up on you close in your ear. ask you a question. The only question that matters, who are you?
5: Our economy isn't about freedom at all. Just the opposite. American capitalism today is defined by an overwhelming lack of freedom for the vast majority of people. and incredible dictatorial power for a few people at the very top.
2: of free market corporate capitalism is the transformation of living living nature into commodities and commodities into dead capital